Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, you guys, once again, this episode brought to you by Velo Jerseys, brilliantly done retro style kits with modern craftsmanship. Really, seriously, the best materials and worksmanship allowing you to squeeze, as I said, personally, not their moto mine, squeezing your washed up body into their jerseys, shorts and socks and hats of your heroes. History is Velo. Velo is now. I went out for a three and a half hour ride in a PDM long sleeve jersey. I felt awesome. Be sure to head over to VeloJerseys.com. Check out their offerings. When ordering, use the code PATRICKFILLER to get 15% off of your order. Oh yeah. Thanks to Velo Jerseys. Another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast, desperately trying to remember that Donald Trump used to be a good guy because he created a bike race. I'm trying, I'm trying to keep those sunnier times and sunnier days in my memory. Boy, it's getting tough. Hi guys, I'm Pat Bulger here in the Pack Filler studio. It's getting warmer. Here I am recording this on a Sunday, the day after Milan San Remo. Did you hear about this potential sticky bottle incident? Oh shit, I haven't read too much about it yet. I didn't get to watch the show live because I was actually doing an interview, which is going to be the next week's show. I know, what do you think? Why would I be recording an interview during Milan San Remo? Don't the people involved in these races watch the races? No. Well, maybe, yeah. But classics are here. The weather is awesome. I even got two great rides in this weekend, you guys. Two. 
Yesterday, I did an epic three-and-a-half-hour mountain bike ride, leaving my door, riding about, let me think, about eight blocks south, dropping into some off-road territory right near my house, spending the majority of the time in the dirt, three-and-a-half hours, no, no loop involved, mainly just out and back. Oh, I'm telling you guys, I live in cycling heaven. I'm sorry if you believe that you are because it's not true. I win. I live in cycling heaven. Spokane, Washington, United States of America. So nice that news is Justin Bieber even wants to move here. No, I, I shit you not. That is the rumor out on the internet right now that Justin Bieber wants to live here. Scares me. Although it's not like we're going to be hanging out in the same places. I don't see Justin as a beer bar, bike shop, small restaurant kind of guy. Well, we might go by my pizza place or my coffee shop, but I can always switch that. I'll probably stay away from from the Beebs. Beautiful ride yesterday. Like I said, three and a half hours. Oh, God. it was Three and a half hours on the mountain bike is a long time. It doesn't give me a whole lot of mileage, but I was absolutely destroyed when I got home. Today, I even got to ride out on the road. Easy hour and a half kind of deal. Just recovery ride. Really heavy legs. Did my usual loop. Kind of a, you know, little standby loop that I'm sure you guys all have. Saw a lot of riders out there. And I have a problem with my ride today. I know, here I am, grumpy old man standing in his lawn. I'm going to complain again. About three of the riders I saw today actually waved back. Of like the dozens that I saw. I have a problem with that. I know that Velominati has the rules. I know that they have that huge list, all right, and that they're designed for that classic roadie. Yeah, they're really kind of over the top sometimes, but I love the Velominati rules. But don't you think we should have some short list of, of duh issues for cyclists? Simple rules, so to speak. I. It just seems like there should be some basic skills, rules, styles, not style, but, uh, well, yeah, because we all have our different styles, but just simplistic, you must know these things before claiming yourself to be a bike rider. Let me think. I'll give you five, okay? I'm going to challenge myself. I will give you five simple rules to start off the list, okay? We will build from here. We're not going to call it the rules. We'll just call them simple rules, okay? Because if we call it the rules, we're breaking into Velominati's territory, and they've mastered that list already. Okay, I'll give you one. Uh, now I'll give you five. First one. How about this? Follow the traffic laws. Don't screw it up for the rest of us. Your Strava KOM is not that big of a fucking deal. Stop at the sign. Slow down for the walkers, the kids, the cars, the dogs. Follow the traffic laws. Now I'm also under the belief that, you know, with a, uh, a, a four-way stop when nobody's there, I come to a slow enough stop, I'll slow down, and then I'll go ahead. I won't dab. I won't put one foot on the ground, which is illegal in my state, but is not illegal in my neighboring state of Idaho. You can treat those as a, uh, like a rolling stop, I guess they call them. You can do that California stop where you just kind of slow down, and then you go. But follow the rules of the, of the traffic. Okay, there's one. Number two. How about this one? Don't be an asshole. 
<laughs> I think this is a rule in life. Every person, car, or other cyclist that you yell at isn't going to suddenly realize the error of their ways and thank you for showing them the path to righteousness. What's going to happen is they're going to get pissed off back. And then I'm going to be the poor schmuck that they next see and drive off the road or throw an open-faced hamburger at. No, uh, that happened. Open hamburger. Right on my long-sleeve white jersey. Happened to me when I was a kid. Slap. Hit my jersey and then bounced. I, I got mustard on my face, you guys. And that was probably because some douchebag cyclist broke the traffic laws and yelled at the car for doing something else like that or slammed their hand on the side of the car or was a Jimmy John's guy delivering a sandwich and breaking all the rules. Don't be the asshole because I'm the guy that gets fucked because of it. Okay, there's two. Let me think. Okay, and then okay, number three will be my one. Wave to other cyclists. I don't care if they have neon jackets third eye mirrors, sleeveless jerseys and arm warmers. I don't care if they're smoking or the one that drives me crazy. And I know you guys are out there and I'm hard on, I'm sometimes on triathletes, but constantly in their aerodynamic position with the full aero helmet on, I'm still going to wave to you and you should wave back. There was a guy I took, I was taking a, a right turn. Okay, he was coming out of the road in which I turned right onto. We were less than three feet away from each other. I waved before I got to the stop. I said hi, and he ignored me. I will not be ignored. We're all in this together. You're out there enjoying it. Wave, wave back. Even if it's just that. If you, I, I'm, I'm actually mimicking it right now. I'm actually doing something physical on an audio podcast. That's how stupid I am. If your hands are on the top and you've, you know, you've got your just hands on the tops, okay? Sometimes I'll just open my hand, one of my hands on the tops, and let the fingers come out like I'm giving a kind of a partial wave. That's fine. Or even a head bob or a smile. I don't know why that's a big deal to me, but it is. Literally, dozens of riders, and I hate using the word literally. I'm going to try to stop using it because everybody's abusing that word lately. Dozens of riders, and I think I got three waves. Is it me? Am I that big? Am I now known as a big asshole? How many was that? Three? Okay, four. This one is good. This one is from yesterday, in fact. I yield to others on the trail. This is for the off-road. I don't care if you have the right-of-way. Slow down and yield anyway. Do it. You're not in a race. Lighten up, smile, and if you get to go first, thank the person who let you yield. And that especially goes for um, people on bike paths. Don't pass by people, especially people going the other direction, and they, they can't hear you. If your bike's finely tuned, they're not going to hear you until you come up past them, and you're going to scare the shit out of them. You don't have to blow by somebody at 30 miles an hour on a bike path that I think has a 15-mile-an-hour speed limit. I'm not going 15 miles an hour. I'm going faster than 15 miles an hour. But I'm going to slow down because they're kids on training wheels, and he's swerving all over the place. 
or they've got a dog on one of those extended leashes that are complete bullshit anyway. You've seen those things, the ones that go out like 18 feet. Basically, you've just given your dog 18 more feet. No dog's ever at the short or the middle end of those leashes. But slow down for them anyway. Besides, if you're a true cyclist, you're just using the bike path to get to where you want to ride anyway. Don't spend your time training on bike paths. I guess I'm saying that because I live in a nice, medium-sized city that allows me to actually use the roads. But yield to others, please. Okay, that was four. Okay, here's five. I've got my last one for the day. Please. Please. I'll say it three times. Please. Get out of your shorts after the ride. I mean, within the hour, please. It's gross. You have a Petri dish growing in your junk right now. You person who's hanging around in your cycling kit for hours after an event. Chamois time is not training time. Just because you wore your, your, your chamois longer than everybody else does not make you better than everybody else. In fact, I think it makes you a worse person. And it spreads disease. The zombie virus is going to come from some guy at one of the triathlons I announced who's been in his kit since 6 a.m. And it is now the end of the event, 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And you're still in that salt-stained onesie. So gross. I know you probably didn't bring a change of clothes. Is it too much to pack a little gym bag? Throw on something else. Even if it's one of those dorky looking kilts. Simple rules. Don't you think we should have simple rules? There are five of them right there. I don't know if I'd put those in necessarily that type of an order. I think don't be an asshole could probably be rule number one. I know there are more. Send them to me. Simple rules. What do you guys can think? Simple rules. Send me an email, patrick at packfiller.com with the, with the title Simple Rules. Or you could, uh, no, I don't want a hashtag. You can tweet it or Facebook to me, I guess. Yeah. And, I'll, and, and the good ones I'll mention on the show. I think we need to simplify a little bit here and just have these simple rules because man it I don't know it got to me that nobody's waving back I'm not going to pick on the people for wearing those neon jackets although I think that is a hell of a scam whoever created those neon jackets and has created that fear factor needs to get on Donald Trump's uh, campaign team to, to spread that fear because that is a brilliant marketing ploy because if somebody's in a bike shop and they see those jackets and if somebody's walking up to them and saying you need to have these neon jackets because it'll keep you that much safer in traffic that is absolute brilliant marketing because you are taking advantage of people and making them look kind of stupid uh, yeah and i know and and there are some of you out there who probably have those neon jackets and you're probably thinking pat why are you such a judgmental prick I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not. A, well, yeah, I am. But you should know that, that those jackets aren't helping you in traffic. And they're making me feel kind of kind of bad. 
because I don't like them. I think they're dumb. The only people who should have neon kits on uh, currently ride for Tinkoff. That's it. Everybody else should have just a normal looking kit. You're welcome for my opinions. I'm just that type of a person. I'm here for you. And I'm giving you my simple rules. And I know that the triathletes out there tend to get angry with me sometimes. I love you guys. You guys are beautiful people. You're fit people. You um, you obsess very heavily over your, your workouts. And you post them regularly on social media. And I, I appreciate that. But And I know that I say a lot about the sleeveless jer- jerseys and arm warmers. And I know that running in a regular cycling kit is absolute misery. And it is. I've, I've done a duathlon. Um, I've done I've done duathlons and I've done a triathlon in my life and um, I think I ran in in regular cycling shorts and I ran in a cycling jersey and yes my armpits were a little chafed afterwards and I know that you guys do that and you, you know you're gonna run after you get off the bike I just don't have to say that it looks good because it doesn't but I understand your reasoning for doing it, and so I support you, and I love you. <laughs> now just wave back to me on the bike, would you? All right, today, you guys, um, continuing on with me having the opportunity to, to honestly talk to my heroes. Yeah. Today, Phil Anderson, another one of my heroes, and, and not to be oversex- overly sexual, but a damn good-looking man. really he was and is quite possibly one of the best looking cyclists of all time he's holding it well man he you know look him up right now he's he's still looking good and he had the style back in the day oh my god he had the style and i got to ask him about that i waited for most of the interview to pass by before i started asking him about that because i didn't want to creep him out like you know i'm sitting here staring at his posters or something like that I don't have any posters of him up in here in the studio. I need I need one to fill just to make myself feel bad and ugly. Because man, he was he 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 rocked it. Always styling. Good guy to talk to. The audio might not be at its best, you guys, this one. So I have to apologize a little bit. We went for the cell phone interview on this one. Probably not my best idea. Forgive Phil. It's not his fault. I was calling him or Honestly, I almost said the L word again. Around the country, around the glo- around the country, around the globe, and it's not Phil's fault. It's my fault. Should have gone with the landline on this one. Before we get to it, you guys got to thank two sponsors. They'll be quick, I promise. But they're good people. Cool Water Bikes, full service shop specializing in helping at risk and homeless youth to get back on their feet, learn a trade, and experience the joy of the bicycle. So. You think you're complaining about me yelling about about my advertisers, but listen to this. Your life is a joke because compared to the people at Cool Water Bikes and the cool things they're doing, trust me, your problems are nothing. Check out their website, coolwaterbikes.org. Make a donation. Buy something for your cycling habit or visit them in this cycling heaven, Spokane, Washington. I know I'm, I shouldn't be giving out the secret, but visit them in Spokane at 224 South Howard, if you are ever crossing into Spokane, let me know. Maybe I'll ride with you, unless you're creepy or break one of my simple rules. Also, thanks to Man Can mm, beer. beer, brewery in your fridge, because beer is the best recovery drink 
No, shit. I'm serious. Look it up. Fuck chocolate milk. Drink a beer. You're old enough. Well, if you're old enough. And if you're not an alcoholic. But other than that, you should have a man can. You should go to a growler place, get a growler filled, a man can filled, pressurize that sucker. You always have the real deal. You will never have to go out in public again. I will never bump into Justin Bieber because I have a man can in my fridge full of real beer. All right? There. Check out our links on packfiller.com. Click on the man can one and buy yourself something. Check on cool water bikes and check on Villa jerseys. I guess that's it. Let's talk to Phil Anderson. Right, everybody, from his beginnings in Melbourne to his amazing list of Palmares over an incredible career, today's guest proudly boasts not only being an accomplished all-rounder, but also the first non-European wearer of the yellow jersey in the tour. He's done a whole lot other than that, and you're going to know who he is as soon as I say, please welcome the great Phil Anderson to the Backfiller Podcast. How are you, man? Hey, great, thanks. Great. Um, Hey, before we get in, just let's get kind of started here. Um, Your career, although no, not the first was uh, pretty darn pioneering for Australian cycling. To get some perspective from the from my listeners here and get them all kind of up to speed, what was it like for you at that time to enter the European ranks, get involved in cycling, and to kind of enter over there in the 70s, late 70s, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, before I came along, uh, you know, there were plenty of other Australian, you know, champion riders on the international stage. But, um, you know, I guess what brought me to the forefront was um, uh, doing well in the Tour de France yeah. and possibly the first Australian to really sort of, well, certainly get the uh, yellow jersey or the first non-European, in fact, to get the um, the yellow jersey. So that kind of uh, thrusted me forward into the, into the uh, spotlight. But um, uh, Australia has a deep history in uh, mostly on the track and yeah. still have been doing very well, uh, of course, of recent times on the track, but uh, you know, going back to the turn of the century, uh, last century, uh, back in the last millennium, where uh, Australians were, were uh, very good uh, on the uh, on the track, but uh, you know, riders like uh, Mockridge, uh, Patterson, um, you know, going back into the uh, 30s and and 40s, uh, right up until the 60s. I mean, we, we had world champ, numerous world champions on the on the track. So, uh, but in the Tour de France, um, I believe the, the uh, journalist Rupert Guinness he wrote a uh, a book on on the history of Australians riding the Tour de Fr- riding the Tour de France, and I was like the 23rd or the 25th uh, yeah. Australian to ride the Tour de France. So certainly, um, I wasn't a pioneer in uh, participating. Um, but like I said, you know, what really sort of uh, struck a chord was uh, getting the yellow jersey, which was yeah. unheard of in, in, in Australia because it's always been considered a European sport. And it's possibly the same, um, you know, in, in America or other, you know, Australia was always considered a, a third world cycling nation and um, especially on the road. Uh, but yeah, just to be able to be, uh, to get that yellow jersey, um, you know, not only be selected on the team, you get yeah. into the Tour de France, but uh, to, to lead it, even though it was only for one day that first year, um, you know, it it, um, it got a lot of media attention. It got a lot of, um, you know, the, the spectators' attention in Europe. It was possibly seen as a bit of a novelty for the French or, you know, the traditional uh, stand-by-the-road spectator or the telespectator in Europe. 
Uh, you know, it's possibly a bit of a, f- a bit freakish, really. You know, a bit like seeing a Martian buddy riding on a uh, on a bicycle. <laughs> but uh, somebody from the other side of the world, um, you know, it was uh, you know it was unheard of, and so uh, yeah, it was it was exciting times. Well, you came over with ACBB, um, if I'm not mistaken, and then went into the pro ranks with Peugeot as your first team. Um, that just doesn't magically happen for any type of a rider, especially riders coming from, from where you were coming from. Um, that experience coming into it must have been something difficult. I've heard of riders uh, dealing with that, that culture transition, that the French looking at you saying, I don't really want you guys here. You're going to take my job away and things like that. Was there any pushback from the teams when you first came over? Well, I possibly was oblivious to it, but in <laughs> retrospectively or in hindsight, yeah. um, you know, I understand that that was going on. But at the time, I didn't really realize. Uh, I wasn't really, um, you know, I was very green. I was just so happy to be on a um, on a on a French team, and the ACUB is basically just like a, a Parisian club, yeah. uh, athletic club, and you know, they had you know they had a running club, they had a swimming club, a basketball, they had a cycling club. The athletic uh, club of Boulogne Billancourt, which is a suburb just on the, uh, just on the, well, in the suburb of Paris, and um, you know the connection was made through a friend of the director of the director of that team uh, has a restaurant here, a French restaurant in in Melbourne, and uh, you know he approached me and said, uh, Phil, you've got about as far as you go in Australia um, in in the cycling. You know you've really got to step up now. Um, if, if you if you'd be interested, I could um, see if I can get a spot on this uh, French amateur club in Paris. Uh, my friend runs the um, you know as director there, so I said, yeah, that'd be great, be fantastic. <laughs> what an opportunity, you know. I mean, I was lined up to go to university, but uh, you know, I could waylay that because I was hoping to represent Australia at the uh, at the Olympics, yeah. uh, nineteen ninety, uh, sorry, nineteen eighty, and so this was. In 79, it'd be a good sort of step up. I'd uh, just come back from the Commonwealth Games where I got a gold medal there yeah. up in um, Alberta, Canada. And so this is a sort of a natu- natural stepping stone, get some international experience to uh, going to, um, you know, hopefully represent Australia at the Olympics. So, yeah, I uh, signed up with this uh, club in Paris. They provided a, an apartment a share apartment with 10 other riders. I didn't know that at the time, but anyway, <laughs> it was a bit of a, um, it was a bit of a, um, yeah, like student housing, but it worked well. It was, um, you know, in, in the Paris and, um, you know, they would park us with a bike and take us to the races every, um, every few days. And, uh, you know, I had an extremely good year as, as an amateur there with part of the uh, ACBB, along with uh, Robert Miller, actually, same, same uh, year. So, um, yeah, we kind of uh, both did well that year and uh, we're both offered contracts from two teams, actually, from Mercier, which is uh, Yupe Zutamilk's uh, team, yeah. and with uh, Peugeot. But uh, the ACBB was kind of like the feeder team, the farm team yeah. for the um, Peugeot team. So, uh, yeah, we uh, we agreed to sign for the um, Peugeot team, but, of course, signing... A, uh, a pro contract meant that you uh, forfeited any chance of, of um, you know, competing in the Olympics because at that stage it was the sport was very much segregated, uh, amateurs and professionals, and yeah. uh, signing a pro contract meant that you couldn't uh, 
you couldn't ride the Olympics. But, um, yeah, you know, that year over there as an amateur gave me a real appreciation of, of, of the sport. And, um, you know, I wasn't sure of this opportunity to, to uh, you know, to ride pro would come again. So I um, threw caution to the wind and same with Robert Miller. And we both uh, signed on the dotted line. And, um, yeah, we yeah. became professional riders first year in 1980. Yeah, and it didn't do too badly following that immediately. 81 with, uh, well, turning pro in 80, yellow in 81, fifth in the tour along with the white jersey in 82. Um, not a bad little growth spurt, I would say there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to compare it to, um, you know, racing nowadays. But, um, yeah, it was, it was for me, it was, it was uh, fantastic, you know. I... Um, you know, the first year was basically just learning the ropes, um, you know, riding in, in really big fields and yeah. uh, big distances, um, you know, race, race, you know, it was a big step up. And uh, the team looked after me and didn't put me on the tour the first year. 81 came along and I uh, started winning, you know, small races, uh, stages in the Tour of Corsica, I think I got uh, one of stages in the Paris-Nice, um, you know, leading up to the Tour de France, won the Tour de Lourdes, so, you know, the, the Peugeot team, at that stage, the teams weren't as big as what they are now. Uh, I think we had 18 or 20 riders on the Peugeot team, and so they had to select nine riders for the for the uh, Tour de France, so it was pretty hard for them to uh, lead me off the team, Um you know, because I was doing reasonably well, as I said, and uh, possibly the winniest rider on the um, on the team. So they put me in the team, but uh, you know, I was going to be chief bottle washer and uh, <laughs> you know, pushing the guys, um, bringing a water boy, uh, everything else. Um, that was my duty, but I I didn't mind. It was fantastic. You know, we had uh, Jean Rene Bernardo, French rider. Uh, he was our he was our um, you know, our, our leader, and uh, so a job to look after him. And so, uh, yeah, that was my um, my first start of the first Tour de France. Yellow jersey, I've just from read and doing my research, and from what I recall, it almost sounds like it was uh, a, not necessarily an accident, but some kind of a bonus in that tour. Um, how, how did that come about? Were you Was it an intended move, or was it? Just kind of like holy crap! I find myself in the position to take yellow, and next thing you know, you're you're doing it. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the first year was uh, I think it was on day five, and uh, never really ridden the mountains before. And um, on day four, the Peugeot team, I think we got second in the team time trial, finished in uh, Capesson on the track there, and uh, you know, a reasonably strong team, and and um, I think it was the rally. TI Rally uh, yeah. team of Jan Ras and Jerry Knudeman. Uh They won the won the team time trial. Always very strong in those early days. And uh, yeah, and and Pujo got second. So uh, all the Pujo riders kind of lined up on the general classification, sort of um, you know nine through seventeen or something like that. And uh, and so yeah, uh, come this first day in the mountains I'd never really ridden the mountains before and uh, you know I think there's like four mountain passes and uh, and it finished up at uh, Plateau and over each pass we went the field basically um, 
you know, half the field was eliminated on each climb. So by the time we got to the bottom of the last line, there's only um, eight or ten of us left, yeah. and uh, and loosened Van Ibb. Um you know, pissed off at the bottom of the climb. Thought it was rather unsocial with him, but he took off. <laughs> and these are all he- these are all heroes of mine, like guys which you know I had posted these guys yeah, posters yeah. on my wall back in in Australia, and I was just bloody. I couldn't believe I was, uh, you know, in the same <laughs> the same uh, group. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, you know, so with a lot of slopes, a couple of attacks, and I just followed Hino. I knew him from. Um, you know, obviously he'd won the tour yeah. before and, and uh, you know, he's a huge star of uh, French cycling, so uh, who international. And so I just <laughs> followed him and, and eventually it was just him and I left with uh, Lewis and Ben was up, up the road. So so we just sort of, um, you know, I basically just followed him and you know, tried to slow him down a bit, but <laughs> on the rails. But, um, but yeah, uh, we got up to the finish and, and because... Um, you know, we we did well in the team time trial the day before. Yeah. It uh, put me in the lead. So, yeah, I, you know, it popped me for the line. But, but I was on that third in the stage. But, yeah, um, yeah and then the next day, uh, it was a time trial in Poe. And it was only a short run. It was like 25 kilometres or 23 kilometres. And um, it's a good story because it shows you the power that the yellow jersey has. Uh, you know, I mean, I was just a kid from the suburbs of Melbourne and it was really my first uh, Tour de France time trial and uh, given that I was, I was you know, leading the, the uh, Tour de France, um, you know, I came came in with a, uh, a third place in this uh, time trial. So, um, yeah, it shows you the, the, uh, the power of or, you know, what it gives you uh, <laughs> that, that uh, yellow jersey. But... Um, yeah, so that was yeah. So I so I actually lost the lead that day. So I, um, you know, took took it back from me. I uh, hadn't beaten me in the time trial, but um, yeah. And in the next two weeks, you know, all the way around the Paris, you know, I was trying to, you know, get bonifications and try and struggle, you know, get back into um, get that yellow jersey back. But uh, you know, I ended up uh, getting the white jersey and then helped to wears. I think Peter Wynn, uh beat me. You know. To, well there and he got the white jersey off me so I slipped down and uh, ended up coming 10th of that first tour God. man just to, for me the thought of you know me as a as a normal mortal to uh, picture the concept of going from seeing these guys on your posters in your room to you know hey I, th- I think I'll just follow Eno up this climb that's got to be a, a shocker and then all of a sudden you were you were put into a a pretty high position and, and you definitely responded. I mean, man, you've won classics, you won stage races, you won time trials and all across the board. Was there um, ever a desire? Was it always trying to, to become a tour rider? Was there a style of racing that you preferred? What what brought you in what areas or was it just the focus of that all-rounder concept? Yeah, well, um, you know, like I said, before that first tour, I'd I'd done well in some smaller races yeah. uh, leading up to it, and then, uh, but finally, doing the Tour de France, and uh, you know, you see the publicity that the, the event gets, and how much focus there is for the teams on getting results there. Um, you know, getting those those results, kind of, that was the focus of mine. You know, those first uh, five tours, and um, but then. Uh, you know, I also got other results in there, 
um, you know, classic, semi-classics. Yeah. Um, so it used to be a big race and, and yeah, it's still an old race and, and, and races like that. But uh, then in, at the end of 85, I came down with a, an ailment, sort of an arthritic problem that, um, you know, only one of you know, several thousand people ever, ever come down with it. Come down with it, and it's, it's called uh, sacroiliitis. So it's kind of arthritis in the sacroiliac, which is a lower lumbar region, and um, that really um, hit me pretty hard. Yeah. yeah. So it gives you uh, to diagnosis like a um, arthritis, where you know you have a lot of problems with the joints in your, in your body, and it. it um, it took me a while to get it diagnosed, and uh, finally, I think it took uh, possibly three or four months to get diagnosed, and then I, you know, go on a on a way, um, medication program, sort of anti-inflammatories, and uh, you know, to, it sort of uh, took me out of the sport about three or four months, and since then, you know, all the tours after that, I never got the same results, and so I, I, I began concentrating more on one-day events and smaller tours and, uh, you know, events like Tour of Ireland and yeah. Denmark and, uh, rather than the than the, uh, the Grand Tours. I mean, there's still the, still the tours, every the Tour de France is about every year. Um, you know, I ended up finishing 13 of them. And, you know, I won another stage in, in 91, my first year with Motorola and, and um, you know, and then those last few years I was, I was running support for the team and, and uh, yeah, you know, for me it was it was uh, yeah a progression a progression. Well, you talk about the teams. Um, your career spanning over four teams: Peugeot, Panasonic, with with Peter Post, uh, TVM, and finally uh, Motorola. Was there ever anything that prompted those moves, or was it just kind of like you know what? I think I'm ready to to kind of move on to the next thing, if you can recall. And and was one favored over the other? Did was there one team that really was a a great fit over the other ones along your career? No, not really. I think um, you know each each team was very important in its place in my you know involvement in my career's involvement. Um, you know, with, with uh, Peugeot, you know, I came through the outer uh, team as you've been in in France, and so uh, it was a good introduction to Peugeot team. Peugeot was a great introduction as a pro. End of it, you know. Uh, I was cutting my teeth still, um, you know, and that got me. Uh, I got some great results in Peugeot, which um, you know earned me a spot on on Panasonic, and that, that was the old rally team, and that was one of the strongest teams, um, you know, in the world at that stage. Uh, you know, they won just so many races, the rally team and uh, Panasonic. You know, we had Van der Aan, we had Plankart, we had some. Uh, some fantastic uh, riders there. Um, Peter Wynn, of course. But, uh, well, and it wasn't and then, and that, and that was, the director was Peter Post, quite a very strong firm uh, director, and uh, which was good for me because coming from the French team where I possibly didn't get the support I, I should have, uh, I came over to the uh, Panasonic team and anything that uh, Post, you know, he just sort of slam, slam his fist on the table and say, today we're going to do this and all the riders kick the heels and, and that would be the plan. <laughs> with the Peugeot team, it was a bit more lackadaisical and, uh, you know, we'd go out of a meeting and everybody would just just uh, do their own thing sort of thing. So it was uh, that was great. Um, 
And then, you know, the next three years, I was with the PDM team, run by Case Cream, and uh, that was good because they were just uh, trying to get into sort of the highest level. They were sort of like a, a um, I guess, a pro-continental team, and they wanted to go into uh, pro-tour level, you know, it, a different categories of teams. But, um, you know, they wanted to break into the big time and do the Tour de France and all the classics and things. And so they brought me along, and, and uh, you know, because they were, were really... Needed me. I needed, needed to bring, you know, I could bring some riders. I could bring uh, soigneurs, and and um, it was it was great. You know, brought some sponsors along, um, equipment. It was it was great. Um, you know, it wasn't my own team by any means, but I just felt like, you know, I had a bit more say in the management of the uh, of the team. So that was great for three years there, and then, um, you know, not the swan song, uh, but you know, my last four years were with uh, Motorola. So. Um, that was great. I always um, marvelled at um, you know the freedom and the the uh, the enjoyment the riders would be having on the on the Seven Eleven team, and uh, yeah, the Motorola was was what yeah, yeah. Um, you know the Seven Eleven team became. So uh, that was a a, um, a good fit, and you know something I really enjoyed um, being part of. So you mentioned um, the you know so, uh, dealing with a director such as Peter Post, dealing with with somebody like Aquitz with with Motorola. Um, did you have more say in some teams other than others? Where you say that Panasonic was obviously just a a well run machine. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Uh, yeah, well, Panasonic was well run, but, you know, I'd have... Um, I own private meetings with uh, Peter Post and yeah. we'd discuss how, how I'd like to do things and, uh, you know, but there were obviously other uh, top riders that meetings with too and then we'd make game plan and we'd have the general team meeting. So that was really good. Motorola was, um, wasn't was quite structured in the same way, but uh, Jim Okowitz was more the manager. Um, you know, we had uh, Henny Carter there in the uh, in the early days and then yeah. we had um you know elder jean was there as well he was a director so we had a couple of uh directors who, who were on the ground but um but no nah, they're all you know they all had the differences but um you know their own point of difference but yeah. but um you know at the end of the day um you know it's about getting results and yeah, achieving that, uh, you know, you just sort of achieve it differently. But, you know, back then, I think it was the riders had more say in how the uh, race, how you play out the race. 
Um, whereas now, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say exactly, uh, you know, because I'm not sort of in the milieu, um, you know, of, of recent time. But uh, back then, you know, the writers would sit around and discuss it and, uh, you know, and, and the directors would uh, listen to what the, what the writers would, would want want to do. But, yeah, the directors still were very, were still uh, integral in, in bringing it all together. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's slightly different. Well, and it is different. I mean, there have been a lot of technological changes over the span of your career. And, um, in fact, I remember vividly watching you on TV here in, in the States on my delayed broadcast, switching bikes, switching TT on a bikes, uh, bikes during a, a stage, um, just because the beginning was hilly and the, the, the second half was pretty flat and you switched to a dual disc kind of a bike like that. Um, advances that changed in the sport in your opinion what were some of the big ones and and what are some that you feel are um maybe even detrimental because when we talk about advances um obviously car uh, radios come into two-way radios come into a part of the equation and a lot of people don't see that as necessarily as a good thing uh no i mean when you think of uh you know when i started uh in the mid-70s you know we were all riding 10-speed yeah, uh, and, and and that was a five on the back <laughs> and two on the front. Whereas now people talk, oh, you got eleven speed or ten speed. You know, they talk about how many other how many clubs on the back. So, um, yeah, big big difference in in uh, those sort of things about materials. Obviously, back then all the all the frames were chrome, chrome aluminium or what they yeah. call steel frames. Um, you know, I saw the evolution across the carbon. Um, there was carbon in the early eighties, but it was it was a different. Uh, oh, weave yeah. and it was uh, totally different to what it is now. They're basically stuck together with aluminium lugs. Yeah. Um, so it was mostly steel, then uh, aluminium, a little bit of titanium. Um, you know, that's the material of the of the frames. Cutlass uh, pedals came in sort of mid '80s. That was a big um, a big change. I possibly wasn't one of the first to to uh, to um, go over to cutlass pedals, but uh, yeah, once once you use them. Uh, then there was, you know, there was no looking back. Yeah, okay. um, Yeah, and then, of course, the integrated um, levers that Shimano brought in. I was involved a little bit with the, with the development of those with Shimano uh, when they came and stayed up with me in Belgium, and uh, that's when I was on the TDM team, so it's supposed to be uh, a year and a half or two years prior to production or, you know, being on the market. That was exciting stuff, um, you know, actually using it and... You know, in in a way, I guess it would be uh, UCI would possibly uh, call it cheating now because I was using something which um, you know others weren't using. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and and possibly won a couple of races that way too. You know, from, from you know it was a real advantage. You know, being able to stand stand on the pedals out of you know going up a steep hill and and be able to go through the gears. You know, while the others were fumbling around, sitting down. But you know, they're all laughing when they saw the first the first prototypes that I was writing um, but yeah you know within you know within 12 months the whole peloton was using them so you know that was that was exciting and yeah the radios obviously I was you know the forefront there with Motorola because um, you know that was one thing that the Motorola team brought in uh, once again uh, you know it's clearly an advantage it wasn't an advantage back then I mean we were there to try and win races and there wasn't a, 
there weren't any rules against it and um, you know being we were the only team which had them it clearly gave us the advantage um, you know I, I, I know I won stages you know in the DuPont tour uh, because you know I was the only one who had the information wow. you know what the finish straight was going to be like uh, after a heavy downpour I think it was in I don't know Hot Springs or some place in North Virginia or somewhere uh, there's a very fast downhill and there was a corner right on the line, um, you know, and, and I, I knew because I had team members on the uh, finish line, um, staff members, and, and uh, you know, they made the calls with the car and the car just told me on the radio, no, it's dry, you can you can um, kick, kick right to the line, um, you know, and that was clearly an advantage, um, you know, possibly an unfair advantage when you, when you think about it. But, um, yeah, so I've seen changes, and obviously now radios uh, are seen all over, and, and yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's changed the way uh, racing has played out. It's, um, you know, I think it's made racing more boring, yeah. um, you know, more predictable. Uh, we see it over and over again uh, where, you know, the rider gets caught in the last kilometre because... You know, everybody knows, you know, the exact speed and how it power meters, everybody knows how many watts, you know, certain riders can push and, and um, you know, the efforts that can be sustained for how long and, um, you know, how much power there is in a, in a, in a breakaway and, and um, you know, what's, what speed the bunch has to go to, to be able to um, catch them before the line. So, unfortunately, the radios do make it, uh, the racing uh, um, a tad more predictable and you know possibly affects um, you know view view ratings I think possibly on TV because people just get sick of watching the same sort of boring racing okay so it, with that being said I mean I'm in complete agreement with you uh, you know and I don't know if I can necessarily blame it because I've, I've never been in the car I've never been in the peloton and, and experienced that type of an, of an end of it but is there a way around it? Can we exist with the technology and can we bring some of that fire back into racing or are we to the point where uh, riders are so meticulous about their planning and about every single detail that we're going to see that plan laid out no matter how exciting or unexciting it might be? Yeah, well, I think if you take the radios away, I think that's, um, you know, it, it it adds entry, intrigue, and, you know, it brings back excitement. Um, you know, having the power meters, you can see what you're doing, uh, all those sort of things. I mean, that's a real tool for training. Um, but, yeah, I think it's up to the UCI. I mean, it was it was good, you know, like, as a, as a rider, as an athlete, you know, people look at Sky... Sky team, their dominance in the Tour de France. I mean, they're not doing anything wrong. They're doing what it takes to, to win the race. And, you know, if it's considered boring, um, that's fine. Go out and animate the race. But they're doing, you know, what's required to, to, to win the race. And, uh, you know, you see it in auto racing, Formula One. You know, yeah. that's, that's the Formula One uh, GPs in Melbourne this weekend. And, uh, you know, you see, um, you know, the, the GP Federation or motorsport. Uh, affiliates, they change the code of, of um, you know, the regulations to keep the racing exciting. And that means slowing the cars down a little bit and taking a bit of power away. And, um, 
you know, limiting tyres and things like that, how many tyres you can use, just to bring it all back together again, uh, then, you know, maybe the UCI should, should think about how can we, you know, how can we make it a more exciting, more suspenseful, um, you know, sport? And, uh, yeah, sometimes you've got to take away some of those advances. Yeah, you can use it for training and, and you can make it safer, but, uh, you know, let's, let's think about, uh, the intrigue of, you know, what, what, the sport was once once upon a time. Well, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one because I sometimes feel like I'm the guy yelling on his couch about pining for the old days and all these sorts of elements. And it's I just I miss that the the concept of a somebody just completely burying themselves, either trying to close a gap or maintain a gap or things like that. And you don't see that as much anymore because it's already decided. Somebody's told them from the back, oh, it's not going to work, or oh, we're going to catch them, or, or anything like that. And it's, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm an old fart. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> you're right. You know, like I watched um, the last stage of the Paranese uh, yeah. the other night. Uh, it was very late here. Uh, but yeah, I was watching that, and you could see, um, you know, the riders are just a good communication with their team cars and, and, you know, just like they used to do back in the, back in the nineties. But, you know, you've got somebody at home base looking at, at the uh, coverage as well. They can yeah. see how the rider, how the rider is suffering on the front, which, you know, their rider can't see, but, you know, they can see from the angle of the helicopter or whatever. And, and they're just saying, yep, just wait a minute. Don't attack yet. Don't attack. Okay. Now go. That wow. sort of thing. And, you know, the riders have lost that sense or you get that feeling that the riders lost that sense to make these decisions or to um you know to take the initiative without being instructed yeah so um you know i say bring back the mongrel <laughs> i like it <laughs> hey so you know let's let's talk about australian cycling obviously exploded and and let's be honest doing in part whether you want to admit it or not to your career uh with Cadell winning the tour full teams such as orica green edge competing among the best uh do you ever sit back and and take credit for even a little bit of it <laughs> oh, look, i guess so i mean it's a um you know if you take an average well the average cyclist you know at, at pro levels possibly any four or five years. I mean, you hear about the, you know, the, the uh, all the heroes who, you know, are very competitive up until, you know, having 15-year careers and things like that. But, I mean, it's just like football or basketball. You know, usually, you know, you see the stars, but you don't see the, the guys who are left in the gutter. And, um, you know, there's a lot of guys who are inspiration for a, um, for a few years. So, you know, it's been a... So the generation isn't necessarily 15 years you know a, a turn of uh, a turn of the peloton so you know since i retired back in 94 there's already been a couple of generations have come and gone um but yeah i think uh you know I, obviously from getting that yellow jersey that time it it uh suddenly it it uh, you know it was achievable it wasn't just something which was for the french or the you yeah. know the, the, the italians or the Germans or it wasn't, it wasn't Germans at that stage, but you know that it was it was approachable to go over there and to consider um, you know a career rating. You know, it's it's not just you know those gods that can that can get the yellow jersey or you know have a stab at the Tour de France. Yeah. And yeah. and you know it was you know the fellow you know after me, well you know we rode together. Of course, uh, Greg Lemon came along. 
and you know he went along and, and took it quite a few steps further than I did. But um, you know that not only get in the yellow jersey, but it was achievable to, to to win the tour. And so, and then he went on to get the world championship. And you know, so uh, suddenly there was a lot of interest, and you know, clubs grew, and and so yeah, I think there's there's you know I'd a, I'd a, a um, you know I, I'd a I was a cog in the wheel to what it's become, I guess. But, you know, there's lots of cogs in the wheel. And, and um, but still, you know, it kind of broke the ice. And, uh, yeah, sure, now we've, we've uh, you know, even when I retired in 94, I never would have thought that, it, you know, you'd have an Australian team, you know, like Green Edge, or I never thought you would have even, you know, ever had an Australian, well, you can never say never, but, you know, have an Australian such as Cadell win the tour. Um, you know, that was a huge... That was, you know, was obviously a uh, very talented cyclist and you know, came out of mountain biking. So, you know, he'd already been a World Cup winner in, in mountain biking before he got on the road. So yeah. um, for, for him, it was an evolution thing too. So, uh, and and now, um, yeah, you know, where's it, where's it going to be in another 10 years or 20 years? It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's expensive to run a team and I'm not sure how sustainable <laughs> It is, but uh, you know that's that whole Bellon thing, you know, where team owners are starting to question, um, you know, if, if there can be any anything come back into the teams because they're just always forking out. Yeah, well, I, I, there's got to be some sort of return. I don't know. I've never seen the books. I've never seen how advertising pays off in that realm. So, you know. You've been inducted into the. I've got a list here: Sport Australia Hall of Fame, Cycling Australia Hall of Fame. You received the Australian Sports Medal, uh, uh, Centenary Medal, as well as the Medal of the Order of Australia. So, I guess my question is: Do you ever have to pay for a beer anywhere? <laughs> uh, look, you know, cycling is still a um, you know pretty small sport here. I mean, what? You know, the bit of with well, a bit of growth here. The, the huge growth in Australia is, is you know, the recreational cyclists. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, the person that maybe watches the Tour de France but just sees the benefits of, of, of uh, riding the bike with their mates on, a, on the weekend or, you know, early early in the morning. And, um, you know, when I started riding, it was, uh, cycling was very much blue collar, but now it's just become, you know, for the rich and wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's totally changed and, um, you know, they say it's a new golf and, and uh, you know, people realise that, you know, it's very social and, uh, you know, it can be challenging. They can go out and ride with their mates and maybe, you know, do a few events, not necessarily races, but uh, sort of grand fondo or yeah. centuries or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, have, have a few beers at the end of the day, um, you know, without having, without really racing. You know, they don't want to expose themselves to, to sort of, uh, you know, being beaten in a big, big way, but they can do it for... You know, it's it's, um, it's wonderful, and yeah, see where it's how it's changed. Certainly here in Australia, and, and uh, I understand in the states and and uh, in England too. It's it's um, it's used the way it's um, you know cycle sport has has taken off. Not necessarily racing. I mean, racing is huge. Like you said, you know, you watch, you look at um, you know the viewing statistics uh, yeah. for the different networks and that. Um, that's really taken off too. But um, you know, it's not just like it used to watch the Tour de France and everybody would say, "Oh yes," you know, people who aren't cyclists would just say, "Oh, I just watch, love watching the images and listen to the bloody the tones of Phil Liggett and 
and um, you know watching all the chateaus and you know real used to be just a real postcard of France, but now it's really become a sporting event. So people are watching the Tour of France, um, you know, as, as a sporting event, not just a postcard of of, uh, of France. Well, and and through those groups such as that, you're able to uh, you were able to start into this this company with Phil Anderson Tours, um, and and take people over there and provide them some of that perspective from the background. So, what brought about that your the company and and that idea to start this tour group? Um, yeah, well, you know, I remember when I was racing, there was a company uh, I think it was Breaking Away Tours. And uh, that'll possibly go back to the 80s or, you know, in the, yeah, possibly the late 80s, I remember, you know, they would ask me to come along and talk to their guests and, and um, you know, it was, it was a bit of fun. Um, but, yeah, then um, rolled forward a decade or so, I'd retired and Nike, Nike approached me because um, they were getting involved in the Tour de France and they were sponsoring the yellow jersey. They were going to be the official merchandise provider of the Tour de France and so, uh, yeah, the yellow jersey and all that and the, um, you know, the swoosh on it, uh, the Nike swoosh. Yeah. And they wanted me on board, uh, I think it was the, uh, it was the 97 Tour de France and they wanted me there just hosting some of their VIPs, you know, that's why uh, their execs from, from uh, well, all over the world, but you know, obviously from the states, and you know the key clients, things like that. And every day they, you know, bring in fifty or you know sixty um, people, and yeah, I was part of the VIP sort of hospitality program, looking after these guys, walking them through the, the event, explaining um, you know what it was. But but it was really a uh, it was a five star experience, you know, where we had uh, people up in the choppers every day, and we. Driving around Humvee, Humvees and wow. and uh, you know staying at chateaus and you know beautiful um, you know there's no expense there and so I thought that you know there was certainly uh, a future in that kind of hospitality but you know for the general uh, sports fan that wanted to come over and see the tour I mean at that stage there were other tour operators but they were pretty much backpackers level accommodation. Um, pretty much left to your own devices over there. Um, you know, it was, wasn't, uh, it was far from what, um, Mikey provided in that, uh, tour. So I started looking into it and, you know, did the numbers and, um, gave it a, gave it a try. And, and, uh, yeah, that was the beginning of Phil Anderson cycling. And, um, yeah, the, the, the tours, uh, you know, what we delivered, you know, the first year back in, uh, 98, uh, tour is a lot different than what it is now. Then it was all about chasing the race, and you know there was hardly hardly time to ride the bike because we were just trying to see the race like three or four times a day. And it was yeah. just exhausting, um, you know. Whereas now it's you know it's it's all about riding a bike, seeing little snippets of the Tour de France. We usually see the Tour every day, but it's, you know it's more about staying in just nice places, sucking in the the uh, you know the culture and and uh, riding on on some beautiful roads and. You know, doing some of the big, the big climbs. Um, you know, enjoying some great meals. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, looking at menus and and um, you know, selection of, of properties. And it's um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, you just want to give people a wonderful experience. And you know, that's why you're saying people come back year after year. Yeah, and you're able to, and you're there, you're riding with them the time. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I'm going there, and uh, you know it's a lot of fun, and and uh, even though they they want to race up the hills and stuff, and I just sit back and, and uh, let them enjoy themselves, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, save uh, save my legs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, I'm definitely out there riding with them every day. A lot of fun. I also see on the website that you've got what's called um, your Phil's Old School of Cycling, the video series up there, which I thought were pretty brilliant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a, a series we did um, last year. A bit of fun, just, uh, you know, a few, uh, few tips and a bit of laugh. And, you know, I also do a um, another one to a podcast called Gruppetto Show, which yeah. is a lot of fun as well. And, um yeah, we just uh, we do we still do those. We do them every couple of weeks. We just sort of sit down and, and have a, uh, a yak around the couch, and sometimes we go to events and put out some good interviews. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Okay, I got I got to ask you this before I go off because this is something that you know I feel. In case you didn't know, you, you were one of the posters I had, and I don't mean to kind of make you you know sound all gushy here, but um, I got it, dude. You have always been a stylish guy on the bike and off the bike, and um, was this something that just came naturally, or did you have to kind of plan ahead or something? Because I, I always remember looking at you, and I had friends who said, "Dude, you're not even close to looking like Phil yet." <laughs> no, I, I just never put much uh, thought into it. No, um, come on. I think you possibly, you know, I, you have to wear the kit that teams give you, and yeah, you try and um, yeah, you go do with what you what you know what parameters there are. And you know, I look back in photo, photos of, especially on the TVM team. Um, you know, there were some faux pas there in the, in the <laughs> color coordination. I mean, I think I saw myself with uh, with the jersey already. He had like uh, yellow, orange, I think there was blue, yeah. uh, black, obviously. Uh, then we had like purple bloody foot warmers. Uh, I think there's photos, you know, you can find online of, of me climbing. I think it was like the camel or something. I mean, we were going just such, such, it's, so outlandish that it's, you know, it'll possibly make a comeback, that sort of thing, you know. But then I think I had beads on my wrist and, and you know, I don't think I had a bloody ankle bracelet, but I mean, <laughs> you know, it was, it was it was prior to, um, you know, body ink, uh, all this kind of, uh, you know, this bling, I guess. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was, it was um, certainly an era when, when uh, yeah, there's a lot more freedom, I think. <laughs> well, it, it you know, and, and and you're giving yourself a hard time. People have to consider the time period in which it was. I mean, for those of us who who didn't get to see a whole lot of it happen live and in action, we'd get our Velo News, we'd get our magazines that would come, and and oh man, you got you had it all laid out. It was perfect. It looked like you were just like, okay, I got to think about every single piece of clothing. But you you just naturally made it happen, and that just that really depresses me. I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> well, I was all peeling my ass, I think. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, all the top riders have their own body stylus, and you know, it's, yeah. it's so controlled um, you know, by, by management. But uh, you know, many thoughts I had that to uh, run it by by uh, you know the powers of be before they come out and, and uh, you know try anything. So um, yeah, it wasn't something that I really, I really put that much thought into it. 
Well, uh, you know, there's probably more people looking at that sort of stuff now than what there was then because you know. Um, oh yeah, probably. You know, people, people, people my age now just you know it just wouldn't be uh, considered cool, but uh, maybe the younger kids are <laughs> looking. And, you know, I mean, I never used to watch or you know, I never used to watch cycling or read about it. Um, you know, it's funny, but n- now I can go on YouTube and, and watch events which I. Yeah, I haven't seen since I was actually in them. You know, writing them. I was like, oh yeah, just want to do that. You know, you can actually be a critique of of, um, of yourself. You know, forty years ago, thirty years ago, it's it's crazy, really. Uh, you know, who would have thought that? Um, you know, somebody was going to capture you today and and show it to you in, in forty years' time or thirty years' time. <laughs> it's, it's bizarre, really, but um, you know, that's what technology has given us. Yeah, life in the glass house, right? In the glass, you know, that's yeah. So, uh, you know, before before I finish this all up, um, how do you think, uh, you know, as when I say we, I mean cycling as a whole. How do you think we're doing here? We've obviously gone through some tough times. Um, we've obviously, uh, the sport has evolved. The sport has changed. And um, how are we doing? I mean, where do you think we're headed overall? I know that's kind of an overarching question, but yeah, well, you know, we spoke a little bit about the. About the um, evolution, yeah. uh, before and has a lot more control. You know, I think the racing is is uh, still exciting. Um, you know, it's 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 the same sport. It's just you know moved uh, moved ahead. Uh, whether it's the right direction, I know it's it's hard. You know, like obviously dr- drugs have, have hurt the uh, sport immensely. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think it's Lance's fault. I think he was a product of, of the generation there, and it you know somebody had to be the fall guy. And um, yeah, at that at that stage, he was the the one at the top of the pile. So uh, he's taken he's taken the hit, and um, you know there are others who should maybe share that as well. I mean, you know, people say those you know are always asking about. You know, my career, that there was drugs there, and uh, you know, like I, I never directly saw it, but um, you know, I knew it was there, and uh, you know, I think it was a lot different back then. It was possibly not so much doctors, but you know, maybe, maybe um, swan years or self medication or or whatever. But it wasn't certainly. You know, whenever somebody was found positive, I was always very surprised. That, yeah, you know, like. When I looked at somebody beside me, I'd never even ever think that they were, you know, on the juice or, you know, um, you know, and every year there was always a couple which are found positive, but, um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I can honestly say it was always a bloody, uh, huge surprise, you know, maybe I was naive and, you know, there will probably be a bunch of comments after saying that, but, um, you know, I always believed those people around me were honest. Yeah. Mm. Well, hopefully, hopefully, you know, I don't know. I mean, and I, I, I do like sometimes, I guess I don't know if I like it, but I, I'm happy to see some of the other athletics and the other sports becoming, it becoming more aware that, that, hey, you know, we're not the bad guys. This is something that's been a part of the sport for a while. It's entrenched and we're trying to clean it up and it's not going to happen overnight. No, no, I think it's, um, I think it's going in the right direction in regards to that. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, the chemist are always a couple of steps ahead of the, the uh, detectives. Yeah. Um, 
as you know, with retrospective testing and everything, I think it's um, things really helped, and you know, passport and and uh, things which are being implemented. I think it's I think it's going in the uh, right direction. They're just going to keep it up, and and uh, you know, it's got to keep evolving, and, and um, you know, keep it clean. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's huge expense, and and you know, not just uh, the cost of doing the testing, but but uh, you know, it's very frustrating for the athletes. Uh, to always be under suspicion. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and and um, you know, it's going to take a while for that suspicion to um, to go away. Well, hopefully, hopefully, we'll get to that point. Well, um, first of all, I want to thank you for your time. Second of all, I do want to say um, and ask you, what are the ways people can get involved and uh, find you in terms of the touring company and anything else you got going on? Yeah, we'll just look up. Um, Phil Anderson Cycling, and you know, I've got a website there and has a bunch of different um, uh, products that we uh, deliver, uh, tours, and you know, we've got a river cruise this year, yeah. which you know, which goes up from Budapest to Amsterdam, um, which leads up to the Tour de France, that's in June, you know, only in a couple of months. So there's things like that which, we, uh, which we're introducing, and uh, yeah, just... Even come down to Australia and ride with us on the Great Ocean Road. You know, it's um, you know a beautiful place to ride uh, down, down here in Australia, and you know, come watch the tour down under, or um, yeah, just uh, get on the website and let us know what you're looking for, and we'll see if we can't help you. Yeah, and they get to they get to ride with you, so that's obviously a nice little perk. So, <laughs> love riding my bike. Love riding my bike. Well, good to hear, man. Well. Um, Phil, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on. I, as I, I think I said to you in an email, I've had a, an Australian contingent who's been giving me endless amounts of crap for not bringing on more Aussie riders, and, and uh, so I thought I'd start at the top, and, and here we are. So, Well, thanks very much, Pat. This is lovely to uh, have a talk, and, and uh, I look forward to seeing it up and uh, just been listening to my Genesis interview. Uh, it was very inspiring. Awesome. Yeah, see, so the audio wasn't great, but, oh, man, he's a cool guy, really cool guy. The great Phil Anderson um, representing it really well. Check him out at Phil Anderson Cycling. I think it's Phil Anderson Cycling. Phil Anderson, Google Phil Anderson Cycling Tours. Uh, if you haven't done any of those tours, I haven't done one of those tours. I think all these people I talk to are getting me excited to go on one of these all-encompassing tours because it doesn't, even, you know, Marty Jamison last week, Stephen Roche a couple weeks ago doing these things. Um, it'd be a, a fun vacation, don't you think? I No, it's, and it's not like it's sounding like it's totally coddling you. It sounds like you can go at your own pace and, and experience a, a, an epic ride and you're not just sitting there, you know, having to stay with the slowest people in the group. It sounds like you could go quick or you can go slower if you just want to stop and have a coffee or a beer. You can do that. So check them out. That was pretty cool. Thanks to you guys for listening to another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast. Be sure and rank us on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And send me any correspondence you would like to send. Patrick at Pack Filler. We have a Facebook page under Pack Filler Productions and Twitter. The title is just simply Pack Filler, right? Oh, and yeah, and send me those simple rules. I'm serious about this. I'm, I'm going to do this one which means I probably won't because I'm a flake. We will catch you next week. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.